in the book of Psalms for our main text here today. And I think I'll give you a bit of context as we go into this. The book of Psalms is not a random collection of Hebrew poems. From Psalm 1 to Psalm 150, there is an arrangement, there is intentionality. It is organized in a way to tell a story. And which story is this? Is this the overarching biblical narrative? It's the story of the Bible contained in the Old Testament. It is the redemptive history. It is the gospel story. The Psalter, in a sense, is a microcosm of the Bible. And it begins with this, let's say, overture that we just sing, Psalm 1 and 2, that contain this promise this of a, of a blessing through a Davidic king that would fulfill God's covenantal promises and would redeem his people, uh, deliver him from oppression, deliver them from oppression. And as we say through the movements in, 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 the, in the book of Psalms, we see how this masterpiece in storytelling navigates through many different themes, themes and, and tones. Uh, you'd have things like lament and thanksgiving, praise, wisdom, all of that to tell the story in poetic form. Things concerning men, things concerning Israel, things concerning the temple, things concerning the relationship between the Israelites and the nations, or the, the, God's people and all other nations, things concerning God and things concerning his words. And I think it would help us, just to illustrate here, to tell about one of my favorite pieces in music, actually, which is Handel's Messiah. You probably know it, and if you don't know it, you probably know, you know the, the so-called hallelujah chorus, you know, the hallelujah thing. Uh, yeah, sorry, I don't know. But I had to do it. So you, you know it. It's one of the most famous uh, pieces. And, and the, the Hallelujah Chorus is not only famous, but it's also the centerpiece. In a sense, it is located at the end of part two of this piece. And the, 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 the Handel's Messiah tells the story of the passion of Christ. Part two is about his passion, his death, his a resurrection, his ascension, and it goes beyond. It goes to the proclamation of the gospel, the rejection of the gospel, and then the hallelujah chorus comes, saying that God will have the ultimate word. Hallelujah, God will be praised. God's victory will be at the end. And I think as we uh, meditate on this psalm today, and, and actually in the, the book of Psalms as a, as a whole, we see that it has a similar structure. For we reach the final section of, of the book of Psalms. We reach its grand finale. And we find here this collection of five Psalms from uh, Psalm 146 to 150. And these are called, guess what? Hallelujah Psalms. And why is that? If you, if, if, if you see, all of these Psalms would start and end with praise the Lord. In the Hebrew language, Hallelujah. Yeah, uh, halal being praise and Yah being a contracted form of Yahweh. You see that the, the book of Psalms do, does not fade out. It doesn't end at a diminuendo. It's actually, there's this huge build up in praise. It ends with, with a bang. It ends with hallelujah. And another interesting fact here about hallelujah, it, 
it's, it's a word that is pretty much common in almost every language in the world would have Alleluia as one of its constituents. But there is a nuanced distinction that I would like to make here. Because Hallelujah is not a mantra that we should be repeating and, and repeating uh, as if it was praising the God. When we say Hallelujah, we are not praising God. Hallelujah is rather an invitation, uh, a summons, an exhortation of sorts uh, that actually points to this imperative. God must be praised. Hallelujah is something that we say to others to invite them and to remind them that all creatures must praise God. God deserves all praise. And with effect, as we look at this psalm, this is the emphatic focus of the whole section here. Psalm 148 lies right in the middle of these five hallelujah psalms at the end of the book of Psalms. The word praise is repeated here 13 times in 14 verses. It summons heavens and with all its angels and, and the celestial bodies, and it summons earth with nature and all its creatures to praise God. We must praise him. So it begs the question, how, how, how should we praise God? And, and the, I think the, the verb to praise, I think, also merits a clarification here. Praise, in essence, means to boast. Not to boast about ourselves. Obviously, there's nothing in us to be boastful of. But to boast about God, to brag about God, to brag about God to himself, to tell, to, to tell God how good he is, how amazing he is, how holy he is, and all his attributes. To return to him the glory that is his. And we can do that by speaking, by singing, by living in light of that. And not without merit in our reformed tradition, I would say, we have this obsession with praising God. Soli Deo Gloria. So much so that even in the short catechism, we find the very first question, what's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God, to praise God and to enjoy him forever. Glorify is to praise and worship. It is to exalt, to revere God. We, we saw the how, but we also can think about the why. Why should we praise him? And if that's not clear to you, let me clarify it. It is because of who God is and what he has done and what he is doing and what he is about to do. God is in front of high. He's the creator, the sustainer, the perfecter, the redeemer, the savior of all. So Psalm 148 calls every believer and indeed all creation to praise the Lord. And this is the main point. This is the takeaway lesson. God must be praised because he is the God who created and sustains the universe and the God who redeems his people. God must be praised because he is the God who created and sustained the universe and he redeems his people. And we see how the psalmist um, ex- uh, presents his argument in three points. We see praise from heavens, praise from earth, and praise from his people. So first, praise from heavens. I don't know if you noticed when I was reading the psalm that it has a structure and, and can you see it? Like from verses 1 to 6, there is a call to heavens. 
There is this summon to heavens to praise God. And from verses 7 to 14, there is a call to earth. So a call to heavens and a call to earth. And to me, I don't know if I was focused too much on Handel's Messiah, but I can't help but think of the image of a conductor here. And a maestro leading an orchestra of praise of sorts. And he starts by maybe calling the cellos first. And he's speaking them to join the chorus. And he says in verse 1, Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, his hosts. So the other thing that I would like to mention here as well is the parallelism. So we see heavens, heights, angels, hosts. Um, they help us to understand better this text. So the conductor, he starts calling this ethereal realm, you know, the, the heavenly realm to join the chorus. He calls the sky the angelic beings. And even now, as we are here, by faith, we know that we are joined by innumerable angels, by myriads and perhaps millions and millions of them that know from elsewhere that we read in the words that they are, uh, without ceasing, day and night they sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That is praise. But the, he moves on to celestial bodies. So not, not only the angelic beings, but also even the planets, even the stars. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all your shining stars. Praise him, your highest heavens and your waters above the heavens, the clouds, the vapors in the air. They all bear witness to God's creative power. And of course, the author doesn't imply here that the, 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 the sun and moon will be singing a hallelujah in audible uh, uh, fashion, although there's, there's even a way to capture the frequencies. You, you might have seen that somewhere. But this is not what this is about. What he's saying here, it's by the very existence of the stars and the planets and everything in the universe... They praise the Lord. Psalm 91 echoes here. The heavens declare the glory of God. Sky above proclaims his handiwork. Isn't he amazing? That even if when you look at the sky in a night, in a clear night, something that is not very easy here in London, but there you see, you know, all of those stars, and then you think, wow, how are they there? Who put them in place? immovable, you know, reliably immovable, so precise is the location of the stars that, you know, it gives direction to sailors. We, we can um, locate planets, and even the planets actually who, that do move, but they move in a very precise, mathematically described uh, fashion, orbit. Even them, they praise uh, God, isn't it? We, we look at the sun. We use the sun to determine the hours with extreme precision. And, and the, the moon for the tides and for the months. So they all praise God. They all point to this, um, to this faithfulness, to uh, how he commands things and how he sets them in place. So much so that the psalmist offers a reason as to why they should praise God. So we see in verse 5, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. So you see here the notion of cause and consequence. And he established them forever and ever. Verse 6, He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. There's a pointer here to God's sovereignty. He established, he sustains them up to this point, and he gave a decree, shall not pass away. 
So we see God's sovereignty. Not only God created them, he sustains them every minute. By his immutable character and by his decrees, he upholds the whole universe. That's, that's a lot of, of certainty. It shall not pass away in this verse. A lot of certainty that should instill in us a great confidence in God's word. And I think we should extend this to the rest of his word. Because the same God that puts the stars in their place with this precision and, and, and with that uh, great degree of certainty is the same God that presents us his word. You know, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God shall not pass away. He established the heavens. He reigns above the heavens. And we should live in awe of his faithfulness and the greatness that is indeed displayed in the sheer immensity of the universe and its regularity. So we see this praise from heavens, but the praise doesn't end there. There is this descending movement from heaven that has now reached earth, and the conductor now calls the strings to join the, to join the music. He calls all creatures on earth and all natural phenomena, phenomena to testify of his character. And, and he, he goes, in a, in, a, in a way, trying to meet all realm of creation. He says in verse 7, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps. It doesn't matter if it's a no, if it's all in the deep, um, or anywhere in the world that is actually unknown to us, the call of praise reaches them. The sea monsters, the deep, the unknown, it may be fearful to us, it may be unknown to us, but they are known to their creator. And then verse 8 Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy winds fulfilling his words. Not only the creatures, but even the weather obey his commands. It doesn't matter how unruly the, the, the nature can be. It could be hail, maybe um, fire, snow, mist. It doesn't matter. They fulfill God's word. But he goes on. He doesn't stop there. He goes to verse 9. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. Beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. If you pay attention, each one of, of, of these elements, they showcase something of God's character. The mountains can display his strength, his power. The fruit trees, his goodness, you know, his provision. The cedars, um, by the virtue of this, their size and their durability, you know, the, the cedars of Lebanon, they have thousands and, and thousands of years, they still have some, um, and they display his royalty, his loftiness. The livestock, again, showing God's provision. The beasts, showing also his um, aggressiveness, like his power. Um, this all points to a God that is very diverse, and it points to the richness, all the richness, that is in him. But the conductor seems to up the tempo now, doesn't it? Uh, you know, the, the apex of God's creation, man enters the scene, and they all must join in praise as well. Kings of the earth and all the peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, it does not matter where you are in the social strata, be it a king, be it a peasant, a prince, or, or, or anyone who exercises authority, all authority comes from above. Rulers of any kind will do his bidding. They will praise the Lord. 
And verse 12, young men and maidens together, old men and children, it also doesn't matter the gender. It doesn't matter the physical strength. It doesn't matter the age. It doesn't matter your marital status. You must praise the God who created you in his image. And again, in a similar fashion, I told you about the structure, we will see that he offers a grounding explanation, like the motif of this passage behind the praise. Why should the realm of earth praise God? Verse 13, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. The parallelism here also help us to understand a bit more. You know, the name of the Lord, his glory, his majesty, they're all conflated in this passage. He is the one who alone is able to accomplish this. A God who dwells on high, dressed in purest majesty, who made the highest of highest of highest his abode. A God whose glory is beyond that which any creature may display in earth or in heaven. A God who is beyond our imagination. He is worthy of all praise. Not only he is worthy of it, but his character demands it. He is enthroned. He is set above. He is supreme over all creation. He lords over the visible and the invisible, the heavens and the earth, the willing and in fact the unwilling too. So, on that note, let me just pose a question to the unbeliever in the room or for those watching online. Does it bother you that this psalm puts this stress in in such all-encompassing power that God may possess? That God has such controls, such an enormous degree of sovereignty. Do you find it perhaps obnoxious? Do you find it unpleasant? Do you find it excessive? Or maybe hard to digest. I want to tell you something because I think this is actually crucial. Because in one sense, it doesn't really matter what you think of it. It doesn't really matter if you uh, give honor to him. It doesn't really matter in a sense if you uh, believe him. His word is sure. We, We know that one day every tongue will confess his glory. Proverbs 16 also uh, gave us, give us a, a great warning that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. There is nothing in this world, out of this world, that escape God's authority, God's power. So there is this sense, but there is another sense on a gracious note that even though we, we know here that even those who perish will be showcasing God's Perfect justice and his holy wrath. We, we, we have an invitation here. Which choir are we going to join? Are we going to join those who praise God by merely existing in a passive way? Or are we going to join those who are actually singing God's, um, attributes, singing to God's attributes, surrender to him who is our creator and to praise his gracious ways? Because, and, and, and actually we go to the last point here, the praise uh, from his people. This is exactly what we, we, we are confronted with here in these final verses. In, in this final point, verse 14, he has raised up a horn for his people. And to explain this image of, of the horn, 
let me digress here a little bit. The kids would have this picture of a bull with, with, with the horns, which is exactly what in ancient times would be used to um, portray uh, strength and, and, and power and victory. If you imagine a raging bull, usually he would have horns. And in, in the ancient times, you know, the, the bull would use the horns in battle to win fights. And as he would win the fights, the raised horn actually uh, portrays the victory. So God has raised up a horn, a victory for his people. Which victory is the psalmist referring to here? Again, if you go to the context of the Psalm 148, in the overarching story of the Psalms, we could trace back to how God has promised Abraham and through Abraham to bless all the nations and to fulfill his promises to Israel. We could see how he has raised Moses to bring his people out of captivity in Egypt in that extraordinary fashion. We could see how he's raised King David to bring victory to Israel and when it was oppressed by uh, the enemies. We could even think about the psalm itself when they were gathered and collected these five psalms, or the Hallelujah Psalms, they were probably collected when they returned from the exile, the Babylonian exile. So there will be uh, great reasons that warranted this, this praise. But, and, and there's a, a big but here, this story doesn't end there. Just as we, we saw with Handel's Messiah, the, the part two of the story also ends in hallelujah. We know that in the New Testament, how God has actually fulfilled the prophecies of old, how he has kept his promise, expanded them, um, gave them the fulfillment, and, and actually finally delivered his people uh, that were being captive, not in Egypt, but from sin. He has replaced the temple with a new one that is not built by human hands. He has raised the son of David, the son of man, the servant of David, who is Lord of David, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to fulfill the kingship promises. For he who descended from earth to heaven and to the depths of the earth in death is now risen, crowned in glory through his resurrection and ascension. You see that, don't you? you I think you saw that coming. Christ is the horn that... Uh, uh, Christ is the horn that God raised up. But there's one last detail that I would like to mention, and it's the word his that you find here in verse 14. You find that this word only appears twice in the psalm. It appears when referring to angels and when referring now to his people. We all know that all the creation is his, is God's creation, but here his is used to emphasize that there is a special way, there is a special relationship that we enjoy with God. Christ did not die for the angels. And even the angels, they are put in their heavenly posts and they glorify God forever and ever. Holy, holy, holy. How much more shouldn't we glorify God? For he has sent his only son to die for us. So, just to conclude, I think if we recapitulate, we see that in this psalm, there is this downward movement where the psalmists call all the realms to praise, praise the Lord, 
praise the heavens. And he goes through all of these layers of creation until he gets to the horn. And he raises the, 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 the horn and he invites us to go up with him in praising our Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of this world is indeed become the kingdom of our Lord and he shall reign forever and ever. If you can see this, I think our response should be filled with thanksgiving, with awe, and our worship should be in spirit and in this truth, for we are called to praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, what a privilege it is to be called your people to know your blessing and favor, to know that you are a father to us, to know that you are not a detached, disconnected creator who made us but left us to our own devices, but you are indeed a father who draw us near and want us to have a relationship with you. To know that despite our struggles by your son, you empathize with our difficulties, and even so you are Beyond them, you are sovereign over them. It does not matter our circumstances, be they immaterial or material, temporal, physical, spiritual, whatever, Lord. You can deliver us from them. So, Lord, as you have dealt in in the past with your people, we pray again that you would continue to be our great shepherd. We need your guidance in how to navigate through all the difficulties of this life, we pray for this pandemic. We pray that you continue to protect us, that you protect those who are suffering with this disease, and that you also enable us to live in, in freedom, to, to serve you and to serve others. We pray that you grant the government wisdom and insight, Lord, that they may find good and better ways. Lord, we pray for those who...